There's so much in God's Word that we could look at together to understand this concept of repentance. There are a handful of really primary passages in the Bible that really, as I've often said, need to be in your back pocket. This is one of them. If you would commit yourself beginning today to memorize this passage, this is our weekly memory passage, Proverbs 28, verse 13, and I commend it to you that you would commend it to your heart. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I can remember at the age of four, I could see it like it happened yesterday. It's coming out of my mother's bathroom. She kept her purse immediately to the right of that doorway and just next to her dresser. I thought, I'm going to get some money out of my mom's purse. First time. And as I was bending down to dig into my mother's purse, my mother walked into the room. And I don't know all that was going on in my heart, but I know that one thing happened. I was mortified that my mother would have caught me committing such a devious act when she gave me everything that she possibly could. Now, I'm not telling you that's the right motive. I'm just telling you that's what it was. And I never looked in her purse again. It never again crossed my mind to steal something from her. And that mortifying reality is often what prevents us from doing things that we should not do. But I never have been compelled to confess that sin, that internal sin, that sin of the mind. I've never felt as though I needed to share that with anyone. And I'm only using it as an illustration today, really, to help you understand that that's not repentance. It's internal mortification that often leads us to becoming skilled at hiding sin. I was mortified that I got caught. She knew what I was doing. And again, like it was yesterday, I remember exactly what she said to me. Todd, if you want something, I'll give it to you. I think that just added to the guilt, and it added to my ability to remember it to this day. How on earth could I steal from someone who would sacrifice everything for me? Certainly normal and really appropriate guilt, but it's not helpful for you coming to the place where you're right with the Lord. It might be helpful in terms of you understanding your depravity, significance of what goes on in the mind. Number one, the willingness to steal. Number two, the wrong motive to no longer steal. This proverb is, as many of the proverbs, just intensely helpful. We say that they're jam-packed with theology. Typically, you get them in couplets, right? And that's really what you have here. You have the consequences 
the covering sin, and then you have the benefits of uncovering it. A friend of mine used to say, as paraphrase of this passage, Todd, what you cover, God will uncover. But what you uncover, God will cover. David spurned the blessing of being called the man after God's own heart. That young man who slew a giant because of his hope in God, his sacrificial willingness to actually believe that God is sovereign and to follow him and to trust him and to engage in a literal battle of impossibility. Lord used him to kill a nine-foot Philistine with a rock, sunk it, as you know, deep into his skull. That nine-foot mammoth of a man fell dead to the ground. And just to make sure that the Philistines knew the power and the magnificence and the trustworthiness of his God, David took his sword and severed Goliath's head. Not many years later, David would see the wife of a soldier who is every bit as brave as that young man. Temptation would enter his heart in a James 1 kind of way. Turn with me to James 1. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. David experienced the reality of this proverb. He hid his sin. By hiding sin, men prevent God's blessings. Hiding sin prevents God's blessings. We see in this passage that Solomon reveals two ways to respond to your sin. We hope that we will pursue repentance and experience God's mercy. David didn't simply commit adultery. He required a woman married to another man, a man in his commission, a man in his employ, a man faithful to the kingdom, faithful to the king, to engage in that act. He kidnapped her. He required that she come into the privacy of his room and he committed adultery 
with her. And he hid that sin. And when he hid that sin so that it wouldn't be exposed, he went further in his efforts to hide that sin by ending the life of one who might possibly expose that sin. Uriah the Hittite, faithful soldier. He didn't initially kill him. I can remember years ago when it was being discovered that a man who Kimberly and I knew had committed sins beyond description. More and more people were finding out. And one person said this about him. They said, well, you know, I know him. And two things, I just don't really see him as the kind of guy that would do things like that. But that's not the real issue. The issue is I just don't think he's smart enough to develop a plan to be able to wiggle his way out of what he had done for all those nine years. And my response was much like what anyone's response would be when they look at Scripture and see how devious sin is. And that was, you know, when a guy spends all day long thinking about how to wiggle out of sin, he's going to get pretty crafty. And he's probably going to convince people that he's not the kind of guy that would ever do anything like that. I mean, how many times have you found out about someone who'd done something so massively devious and you thought, I would never have thought he or she would do that? This is why you men, you need iron men. Ladies, you need wow, because you need to know each other. At the moment where something happens and multiple people are saying, wow, I would never have thought he would do that. It's not because it's really that surprising. It's never that surprising when you know the person. You know that sin, especially massive sin, doesn't happen overnight. It happens because men get good at hiding sin. So what do they do? They sin because they think, I can hide it. After the sin with Bathsheba, David attempted to provide an opportunity for Uriah to be with Bathsheba so that if and when there was a child, which there would be, that it would be considered to be Uriah's child. Uriah refused to be with his wife, and so he slept on the steps of the palace and said, no, I, I won't do that. While other men are out in the field, he really certainly didn't know exactly what was going on. He just knew that it was a strange event. Why would this happen? I'm not doing that. I'm committed to the king. I'm committed to the kingdom. I'm committed to the people. I'm going to serve, and I'll get back out there in the field. And So David attempted to persuade him to do that by getting him drunk. People will do things when they're drunk that otherwise wouldn't do. And David felt that that would be the, the recipe for getting him to be with his wife. Uriah stood strong. David put him into battle and had him killed. And you can imagine in that moment that David had a bittersweet thought inside his heart Oh, how awful what I've done, but whew, at least I won't get caught. And then came Nathan. Nathan comes to David, and Nathan describes the scenario in which David was involved, and he described it with an illustration. 
He talked about a man who had lots of sheep, but he came and he took the sheep of the one man who didn't have any, and David said, that man deserves death. And Nathan said to him, David, you're the man. You know, when we hear the phrase today, you're the man, it means something a whole lot different from what Nathan meant. You're the man. And so come the withholding of God's blessings. In fact, much trouble comes to David's house. David and Bathsheba's son, he dies, the child dies. David had pleaded with the Lord to keep the child alive, but the child dies. Solomon is born to David and Bathsheba. Much good came out of that. This very proverb comes from Solomon. Solomon would eventually, as you know, succeed David as king of Israel. As I stood in Jerusalem years ago, looking off at the palace that Solomon had built for his 1,000 adulteresses, I wept. My dear friend Kurt and I stood there and looked, and Kurt said, how awful. You know, you look at it, you think, oh, what an amazing building. It's the first thing you think. And he said, how awful. But that place right there, Todd, that you and I are looking at was specifically designed for the engagement of Solomon in adultery, that he would have a place to go to commit adultery with as many women as he wanted, whenever he wanted. David's son Amnon rapes a woman. Oh, but not just a woman. David's daughter, Tamar. David's son Absalom avenges the rape of his sister. He kills Amnon. Absalom plots to succeed David as king of Israel. He purposely positions himself to gain favor among the people so that he can seize power from his father David. David's experiencing the betrayal of his own son. David experiences consequences for his sin. Absalom takes some of David's concubines. He has sex with them in public, not just for pure joy, but for insult. David endured immense difficulty in his life because of his sin, specifically because of the sin with Bathsheba. Praise God for David's confession. But there are consequences for sin. And in particular, there are consequences for hiding sin. You know Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. God does desire to bless his children, and yet there are those who will simply prevent God's blessings because of a lack of willingness to confess sin. You know, it's often the man who is most obviously unrepentant that is most passionate about hiding his sin. He's most obviously unrepentant, and yet he is most passionate about being unrepentant. 
repentant. Point two comes from the latter half of this passage. He who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Confessing and forsaking sin results in God's mercy. But it's often the man who puts off God's mercy who is doing so simply because he won't look in the literal spiritual mirror that God has provided for him being men. When Nathan came to David, how long did it take David to confess his sin? It was immediate. David showed immediate confession. And how did God bless him? He blessed him with a clear conscience. He blessed him with, think of it, Nathan's increasing willingness to correct him. How did it go, men, the last time someone presented you with your sin? How did it go? Did it go like it went for Nathan? Or was it painful for that person who was loving you enough to tell you the truth? Look with me at Psalm 51. David wrote this as a reflection of his heart in light of the outworkings of his heart subsequent to committing adultery and committing murder and confessing it all. Now, this is a beautiful passage. I commend this especially to you. Your heart and your mind would be fixed on confession, men. To the choir master, the psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me. It's not the heart of an arrogant king who committed adultery and killed a man to hide it. That's the heart of a changed man. That's the desire. God, have mercy on me. What does he come to the table with? You know, Lord, I've done some good things. Represented you well. I've fought for Israel. I've fought for Judah. No. He's got no resume. But he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. That's a term of particular specificity. He doesn't say erase them. Why? Because that's not possible. They are what they are. They were what they were. It is what it is. You don't make sin never to have happened. But it is blotted out for those who plead with God for mercy. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
my pastor, Jerry Ragg, used to say to me, Todd, thank God that he is just when he judges. And he said that to me during a time in my life when God's judgment was clear in my life. Behold, verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Do you need any other passage in the Bible to understand the condition into which you were born? And I could take you to a lot of them. I, I usually do. Often we go through a, a string of passages that speak of total depravity. Do you need more than this to understand the trouble into which you were born? Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What in the world is hyssop? Well, it's a flower, but it doesn't necessarily have any great cleansing value. What's the benefit of it? It was used in the ceremonial Levitical system as a brush when blood was sprinkled upon the people. What does that point to? It points to the purifying blood of the Savior. David here is crying out to Jesus. Lord, cleanse me with your blood. You know, when we make a big deal out of the gospel, the fact that it is the gospel not only that saves, but the gospel that sanctifies, here's why. As David would do, you and I also should say, Lord, cleanse me from my sin with your blood. May it be that when we take the Lord's table, that it would be that important to us to take the Lord's table with that mindset. Lord, may it be your blood which you shed for the legitimate, efficacious forgiveness of my sins that would be the most prevalent reality on my mind as I think about what I'm doing when I take the cup, when I take the bread. May it be that I wouldn't simply say, yeah, this is what we do once a month. But instead, that we would acknowledge that whatever the sin is, if you're in Christ, it's covered by his blood. It's cleansed more regularly by his blood. When Jesus insisted on washing Peter's feet, Peter said, no, no, no. Jesus said, yes, yes, yes. Why? Because there needs to be a regular cleansing. There's a one-time purifying cleansing. Really, that took place on the cross. It's manifest in a person's heart in the moment that God produces the transaction of regeneration. But the Lord's table is that moment in which we take seriously all of our sin. Well, Peter said, well, give me a bath. Peter, I've already done that. You need your feet cleaned. The stain that comes with the regular active sin in which you involve yourself on a daily basis, that it would be confessed. We do it once a month. You and I should do it every moment in practice. Not the Lord's table, but confession. Psalm 51 goes on in verse 8 to say, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. See, you know when you've got a right spirit when you don't. I mean, when you think about it anyway, you might feel like 
you're vindicated or you're justified in thinking evil, wicked, gossip-like, bitter thoughts about other people because you're convinced that what they've done is at least a little bit worse than what you're doing in the moment, right? But as you stop and ask yourself the question, am I really engaging in clean heart thinking? Oh God, have you really renewed a right spirit within me if I can withhold forgiveness from someone? If I can cling to my sin and not expose it? If I can continue to hide that sin, do I really have a clean heart? That every one of us should be willing, not just willing to receive, but longing to receive correction. That whatever sin it is would be exposed. Guys, you're not hiding anything, not really, really well. And God knows, right, that ultimately it will be exposed. Hide your face from my sins, verse 9, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's just get real for a moment. Many folks think, well, it's, it's my salvation. I pulled the trigger. I made this the transaction happen. God laid it out for the whole world, but I chose it. And that pride often is what prevents a man from being willing to call it God's salvation, that he would have a willing spirit. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see, doesn't that make sense that if it's God's salvation that he gives to us, that it's joy-filled, but if you think for a moment you earned it, you will be like Martin Luther. You will constantly be obsessed with the guilt that can't be taken away except by Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith, not by works. It is often a work of sin that we cover with another work of sin that leads to a guilt-ridden disposition. But when we ask the Lord, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation, we are acknowledging that it's his work on the cross. It's an efficacious work. It's a work that certainly accomplishes forgiveness, and we rest in that rather than saying, you know, I I rest in decisions I made. No, no, no. I rest in what Christ accomplished on the cross, and I have joy. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. You know, your best evangelism is the result of your best repentance. You're really, really willing to acknowledge your sin, to confess it, to tell men. You're so overjoyed, aren't you? You know, those nine men that bravely stood before you this morning and, and really praised the practice of repentance and confession, they did that with great joy, didn't they? That was obvious. But to hear Mark and, and other men speak with such joy that comes from being around other men who are willing to confess sin. I mean, that's just men, in a sense, that's men being real, but there's much more to it than just being real. That's kind of the buzz term these days. Guys, let's be real. Let's not just be real. Let's be humble. Let's be real humble. Let's confess our sin and be willing to experience the great joy of confessing and forsaking sin resulting in God's mercy. You see, David here is expressing not just confession. He's expressing forsaking of sin. Then will I teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. No man with a dirty conscience can do that. 
No man who's hiding sin can honestly and confidently and effectively turn transgressors to the Lord. He's too busy criticizing the person that he's trying to evangelize. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do you feel despised by God when you sin? Scripture tells us in 2 Samuel 11 that God was displeased with David. He was angry with David. There was a literal holy despisal in God's heart for David, who was his son. And David says here, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Guys, you can't fake this, and you can't hide it when it's real. This contrition, this legitimate hatred for what you've done. People know when you're contrite. Not just because you want them to know, but because you can't help yourself from telling them. Psalm 51 is so powerful. It's not powerful because it's poetic. It's powerful because it's a true expression of legitimate contrition and repentance in the heart of David. Milton said a number of things that were tremendous in our retreat. Milton's a real, real personal blessing to me. And to have him there at the retreat gave me the opportunity to trust that the Lord would use him in our men's lives the way he's used him in my life. The impact that the Lord has had on my life through Milton is nothing short of monumental. Partly because of his faithfulness, you can say he is tied to the text. One thing that Milton said that I found particularly helpful was our problem is that there's not enough I, my, and me in our confession and too much he, she, this, or that. So often a confession comes with caveats, unnecessary qualifications that really dilute the significance of the confession. But he who confesses and forsakes sin experiences God's mercy, according to our passage. I'm so encouraged by what so many of the men said this morning. But I think in particular, Dominic's words come to my mind when he introduced himself as a sinner. I would hope that our church would be known by a spirit of confession. You know, Job experienced a lot of trouble. But you get to the end of Job after he has declared his righteousness, he demands his day in court, he's convinced he can persuade God to 
relieve him of all his difficulties and remind God what a great servant he has been. You know, you get to the end and he just says, ah, I cover my mouth. I knew you, but now I see you, he says. And God flooded him with practical and spiritual blessings, restored to him more than he had prior to Satan's involvement. In James 5, verse 11, James says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is passionate and merciful. So a lot of people look at the story of Job, and they, they think, you know, this guy was totally undeserving of all he experienced. And what a humble guy he was through it. There was some humility, but there was an awful lot of pride. The thread that runs through Job throughout the story is a thread of pride. And so here, James kind of sums it up. You know, 42 chapters, and James says it all in one verse. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and the story shows that. But the book of Job is not about Job. The book of Job is about God. And James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. How did the Lord display his compassion and his mercy? He, by his sovereign work, brought Job to the place of honest confession and forsaking of his sin. You know, I've been convinced for a long time that humility equals happiness and pride is poison. The scripture tells us God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. There's nothing like being opposed by God, but there is nothing like experiencing the grace of God. Two decades ago, my life came to a screeching halt. I was a year away from finishing seminary. I was the vice principal of a Christian school, 250 kids. I led a college Bible study of 50 students. Title was Under Shepherd. I was pastoring these people. And I was a good talker. Not just articulate, but mostly theologically right. I even helped a lot of people. And I disobeyed the Lord. God exposed that. And while being confronted with men who loved me, I lied for two hours straight. Pastor Jerry Ragg took me out in the hallway. In fact, I took him out in the hallway. I thought if I could get him alone, I could get him to be on my side in this thing. 
And Jerry, who knew me pretty well, listened to me. He was very patient. And he said, Todd, you can snow these guys, but you can't snow me. And we went back in that room, and I confessed everything, what I had been working feverishly to hide for two hours. I spilled out over about 20 minutes. Within a couple of weeks, I had the opportunity to talk to John MacArthur for about 30 minutes. and He said, well, Todd, what did you do? And I told him, told him everything. I thought, if I want the man's advice, he needs to know the truth. And his response to me was, well, you know, I don't believe in a scorched earth policy. Scorched earth means you go in and you burn everything and you throw salt on the land so your enemy cannot grow crops to survive. He said, I don't believe in that. He said, Todd, you need to understand God's grace. I didn't know what that meant. But my pastor is saying to me, you need to understand God's grace. So I said, okay, John, you got it. I'll do everything I can to understand God's grace. And so for the last 20 years, I've been doing my best to understand God's grace. What I know about it is that God grants it to those who are humble. But he withholds it from those who are prideful. I have by no means achieved a pattern of perfection in my life where sin doesn't happen. I'm no longer tempted by alluring women because, for one, God's given me the wife of my youth and um, all that she is in and of herself makes it easy to avoid any kind of interest in any other woman. But there's more to it than that. I am scared to death of the old Pharisee named Todd Barnett because I was really, really good at persuading people to believe me. And I won't do that because, for one, my wife is worth not returning to being that kind of man. But as Jaime talked about, regarding what Milton talked about, the math that Milton presented to us is that if you have three children, I believe he said over the next 500 years, you would probably have something like 300,000 descendants. Well, if you know anything about how many kids I have, <laughs> you know I'm going to have a lot of descendants. But I'm desperately concerned about the six that live in my home. And I'll tell you why. Because I have wronged them. I've been impatient. I've been unkind. I've been angry. There are times when I've made no sense at all, and yet I'm completely convinced that what I'm saying is justified.
And my children are not fools. But I am completely convinced that every sin I have committed and every sin I will commit is in fact covered by the blood of Christ. I'm not convinced just because I read that in the Bible. I know that to be true of those for whom Christ died. But I'm convinced of that because God has produced in me a holy hatred for my sin. And so some time back, I developed a pattern. And that is, when my sin affects my children and affects my wife, I go back to them and I tell them what they already know. You saw me sin. You saw my anger. You saw my impatience. You saw my lack of willingness to be reasonable. And I am convinced that if I don't tell you that I know about it, you might think that I think you don't see it. I want you to know, not only do I see it, I hate it. And so I want to rest in Christ for forgiveness for that sin. And I want to rest in Christ for victory over that sin because of his resurrection. Christ not only proved victory over death, he proved victory over sin. Men, women, the result of that for you and me should be and will certainly be if we are faithful to Christ that he will produce humility in us. You say, what do I do about the broken relationships, the ones that I, I think are history? I can't do anything about it. Try. Try. But as long as you are convinced that you are right and they are wrong or you are more right than they are right, you will never experience God's grace. Let me ask you, have you become a godless theologian? I don't mean pervasively in your life, but are there moments where you are so committed to reading and understanding the Puritans and the reformers and you know the modern-day great scholars that God's not penetrating your heart in such a way that you can confess your sin? I would hope that today might be the day that you would get up out of your chair and you would go to that person with whom you have the broken relationship and you would trust the Lord to bring correction to that today. Maybe it's somebody you need to call. As we go to the Lord for remembering Jesus, his death, and the efficacious results of his death, plead with God to give you the ability to answer the question, what will I do with what I've learned? What will I do with this theology of confession, this theology of forsaking? What will I do with the fact that whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper? What will I do with that? What will I do with the fact that he who confesses and forsakes his sin will obtain God's mercy? What will you do with that? Now listen, 
Don't let your response be something like, well, I'm going to do better. I'm going to be a person who tells the truth. I encourage you right now to write down something specific. I'm going to go to and fill in the person's name, and I'm going to confess the sin that I've never been willing to confess. I'm going to go to a particular person. I'm going to confess sin that even though it wasn't committed against him because it was committed against God, I'm going to seek accountability and discipleship from that person such that it might actually have an impact on me and I would break free from this pattern of bitterness. I would ask you this morning to answer the question with specificity. What will you do in light of the fact that God provides fullness of compassion for those who will confess and will forsake their sin? My life is a testimony of God's monumental grace If you knew me 20 years ago, if you knew me well back then, you might have thought what I thought back then, God could not possibly use me. Maybe you think that about yourself, but that's not true. To the degree that you will confess and forsake your sin is the degree to which you will become a conduit of God's compassion, not only for yourself, but for others, that you might be an evangelistic giant. Lord, we ask for your mercy. That's all we can ask for. We plead with you to make us a people whose lives and ministries and confessions and forsakings are honest, pervasively real, Lord, that you might plumb the depths of each of our hearts this morning. God, will you today, we plead with you, will you produce in us a purity that will enable us to be powerfully evangelistic, that we would be effective in turning transgressors unto you and your compassion. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.